Good morning, this is Tom Capone, and this is uh, Spoilers Alerts, and this is Life Stories, Conversations Inspired by StoryCorps, Episode 2, with very special guest, Michael Coleman. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining me again. You and I had an opportunity last week or two weeks ago with your wife, Hope, to uh, begin a conversation that we're going to continue today, just you and I. Great. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here to continue the conversation. I think that we both felt that there was probably more to share and I'm happy to give us you an opportunity to, uh, to share uh, your life story with uh, those in our listening audience. I think that uh, the place that I'm going to begin is with a quote that was taken from one of the eulogies at George Herbert Walker Bush's uh, funeral service yesterday in Washington. And this was one of the quotes that was shared yesterday. He strongly believed that it was important to give back to the community and country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched the giver's soul. I'm beginning with that because uh, when you and I spoke uh, last time, it was apparent that community service was an important part, a big part of your, your life and your wife's life. And um, I'd, I'd like to begin there and talk about uh, how it is that community service is so much a part of, of how you were brought up, how you were raised, and how you were raising your kids. And um, I think, let's, sure. let's talk about that. Sure. Well, I didn't have much choice. My parents, I was loosely called a red diaper baby. Do you know what those were? No. Okay. What happened was my parents, my father was a union leader uh, and was accused of being a socialist. He was actually called before the McCarthy Investigation Committee. And my mother, who was uneducated but married, my father was a Ukrainian Jew, my mother was an Italian, uh, mm -hmm. and she learned through him to care about the human condition. Uh, so uh, I was brought up with very, you know, with a sensitivity toward the human condition and toward oppression and especially toward racism and injustice. Uh, my parents went on a civil rights march in 1930s. My mother had met with Eleanor Roosevelt when they wouldn't let her stay with uh, her black friend uh, in, a, in a hotel, and, and she moved into a black hotel. So I was brought up to always be concerned about equal justice uh, and just equality. I had no sense of prejudice or uh, black, white, gays. My, I had a lot of you gays in my family. Color, you didn't no, see color, Nothing. And even though I was brought up in Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn, which was, was a, a very white neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, it never, I was always aware of, of racism, anti-Semitism, prejudice, uh, and just the way poor people in general were treated. Uh, you know, it's a... a, a Everybody talks about uh, the, the new president uh, about uh, make America great again. Uh, I'm not sure what he means. When was it great? It was great for maybe upper middle class white people, but it wasn't great for black people. They weren't allowed to go. <laughs> I, you know, I could see George Wallace standing in front of the University of, of Alabama, not permitting black, uh, black, and and the whole state supporting it. I mean, it, it was great for a select number of people, but it wasn't great for handicapped people <laughs> who were put in mills. All of the, those injustices are getting better. I have a few problems with them now, but getting better. So I was always aware of that. Uh, so when it came to what I was going to do with my life, uh, how could I do it best? 
my father was a very brilliant man, spoke seven languages. And my mother, though uneducated, was pretty bright too. So fortunately, I inherited a few genes mm-hmm. that enabled me to chew gum and, <laughs> and, and walk at the same time. So uh, uh, I went to college. I, we were very poor. So I could only get into a free college. City College back then was $17 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was before open enrollment, it was very a very different time. A very different time <laughs> and a very good college. Right. As a matter of fact, Colin Powell graduated right before me. A lot of fabulous people went to that mm-hmm. school. So I got into that school and I paid my $17 a year mm-hmm. for tuition. Uh, the war was raging on in Vietnam. Uh, I was against that war. My parents were against that war. Uh, the draft was, was, was going on. And, and you also saw that more minorities are being drafted and fighting that war uh, than rich white kids who had always had a, a way out of it. Uh, so uh, I decided to go to law school. Uh, and uh, originally, actually, I was going to teach in a, a minority uh, public school. I had to take an intensive pre- teaching program to learn how to teach minority children uh, because I didn't major in that in college. So they sent me to student teach in a school in Bedford-Stuyvesant. This was after you graduated, I graduated from high school? I graduated from high school. From high school. I'm, excuse me, excuse me I, graduated, I graduated from college. And if you didn't take teaching, I hadn't yet gone to law school. Okay. I didn't, hadn't made that decision yet. Okay. Uh, I thought that teaching in a, in a, uh, a disadvantaged neighborhood might be okay. something I could do. So I, uh, uh, they, I took this intensive teaching program, which was, a, uh, a, I think it was a six-week program, but the last week you had a student teach. Mm-hmm. And they sent me to Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn to student teach. And I was a substitute teacher for the day. And it was a all-minority school. Uh, and I, I came in, and the kids were wild. They were throwing things around. It was this, and I, could, you know, I, I couldn't control them. Uh, there was a little girl in the front row with her hands clasped, a little Hispanic girl. Her name was Maria. And she sat in the front row very quietly. And she was the only one behaving. Finally, I saw smoke coming from the back of the room. And those old desks that we used to be able to put your books underneath the wooden desk, I noticed fire coming up from one. Uh, one of the kids had a lighter and was burning a hole through it. And uh, I put the fire out. I lost my temper, and I cursed in Spanish at them. Mm-hmm. And they quieted down immediately. It was the most exhausting day of my life. And I looked in the front row, and I said to Maria, I said, are they always like this? Or are they just like this because I'm a substitute? And they're, they're acting like this. And she oh. said, no, Mr. Coleman, they're not always like this. They're good today. They like you. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll take my chance. You know, I'll take my chances with the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go to law school. And I, so I, I, the first law school I accepted was St. John's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, got, I actually got thrown out the first day. If you want to hear that story, it's what happened. Let's, let's hear it. Okay, yeah, what course. happened was I was brought up by a mixed marriage, you know, I was brought up with very good values, but not with formalized religion at all. Mm-hmm. I was taught up between right and wrong, but I didn't go to church, I didn't go to synagogue. Mm-hmm. I just, I think I had a good moral compass, but that's the way I was raised. Uh, so the first law school that accepted me was St. John's, mm-hmm. which unbeknownst to me was a very religious Catholic school, mm-hmm. uh, but I'd never seen it. I was just happy to get, you know, go to the first school right. that accepted me, because right. I was gonna stay out of the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I showed up the first day and everybody was in suits, jackets, and ties with buzz cut haircuts. Mm-hmm. I had come from City College, which was 
oh, we were out protesting all the time. It was the middle of the war. I showed up in my sweatshirt with my long hair and mutton chops. And unfortunately, I had to sit in the first row because my name was Coleman and mm -hmm. it was alphabetical. And the professor of the first class was the dean of the law school. And he was, he was a priest and he got thrown out of the priesthood because he had a deformity, whatever it was. He was a bitter old guy. Uh, so he looked at me uh, in, my, in my sweatshirt, waved his hand and said, Mr. Uh, Coleman, would you rise? I rose. I, was, I didn't want to make mm -hmm. any trouble. He said, we have a dress code here. You dress appropriately or don't come back. I said, I'll dress appropriately. I'm not looking to fight with anybody. I didn't even own a sport jacket back then, but I was a fine one. Mm -hmm. So I sat back down and he said, uh, all rise for the Lord's Prayer. And I just stayed seated uh, because I wasn't, right. I wasn't a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> and he just glared at me and I just sat there innocently. He said again, Mr. Coleman, rise for the Lord's Prayer. And I, again, I'm not looking to fight with anybody. This was not one of my political things. Mm -hmm. I just said I choose not to participate, mm -hmm. thinking that that was a reasonable thing to say. And he, he was furious. He waved at me and said, Mr. Coleman, I said rise for the Lord's Prayer. So I got up. I was kind of stunned. Mm -hmm. I was staring at him. I didn't want to. Yeah. And he said, uh, uh, Mr. Coleman, as a matter of fact, I want you to lead the class in the Lord's Prayer. And I've got my mouth open at this point. I, and I, I was aghast. Mm -hmm. I didn't, no words were coming out of my mouth. And he, in anger, said to me, don't you even know the Lord's Prayer, Mr. Coleman? And I said, the stupidest thing I've <laughs> ever said in my life. Here we go. <laughs> I said, no, but if you hum a few bars and get me started, maybe I'll remember it. Oh, and he boy. says, out. And I said, out. I got thrown out of law school. I've been in, I didn't mean to start any fights. I didn't come in to do anything wrong. I'm standing in the I'm hallway. I'm sure that that's not the way you, you saw the day Yeah, unfolding. I, I saw my life unfolding. Here I am. Right. I'm going to get drafted now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go in the army. This is the middle of Vietnam. I don't want to, you know, I really don't. I was, you know, we'll get to that story in a second. But I'm standing in the hallway. I wait till the break, which is an hour and a half into the class. I come back in, and he says, what do you want? I threw you out of here. And I said, look, I'm sorry, but... I'm not even a Christian. And I can see his wheels turning. Well, it's mm -hmm. not really. Now he assumes I'm, a, I'm Jewish, even mm -hmm. though I'm, I'm not that either, because technically my mother's not Jewish, so I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I was baptized, but I figured I'll. Right. Uh, so he says, uh, okay, resume your seat. So I resume my seat, and it was the old Socratic method where you say, mm -hmm. first case, people, Pernoia versus Neff, uh, how about Mr. Uh, Coleman? How about you? And he gets up and tortures me for an hour and a half. Um, the next day, all the, all the other students came up were, to me. Were you prepared? I was very prepared. I did. I was great. Mm -hmm. uh, next, so all, everybody else comes running up to me saying, that's great. We have, there's 200 of us. There's 200 cases. This is 25% of your grade. So you're done for the semester. How stupid do I look? I come in the next day, next case. He says, how about Mr. Coleman? Well, they stopped, people stopped bringing their books. Mm -hmm. It was called Coleman on Torts. Every day I got up, he tortured me and tortured me. Now, what happened was they were going to take the draft over to something called a lottery system. Mm -hmm. And you were going to have a date, a birth date, was going to be attached to a number, and that was going to be your draft number. Mm -hmm. uh, but that wasn't coming out for about three or four months.
And what they did is they pulled away all graduate school deferments, only undergraduates. And then if you were in graduate school, you were actually exposed to the draft for about three months. And you had to make it past that to get to the... Who was the first law student in New York State to get his draft notice? Me. But I started reading the regulations, and it says if you're taking a full-year course, uh, they can't pull you out in the middle of a full-year course because, you know, that would really... Mm-hmm. So, sure enough, I had contracts one and contracts two. It was a full-year full course. So I called the draft board. I said, I explained to them. He said, oh, that's great. They said, I said, what do I need? They said, you need a letter from the dean. I said, oh, that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. So, well, so you were enrolled there. I was, yeah. I was so, enrolled. I was a student. So yeah. off I go to see the dean. He says, what do you want? Uh, I said, well, I have a situation. I got drafted. Uh, I need a letter from you. I haven't prepared it for you, saying that contracts one and contracts two are a full-year course. They'll defer me until the end of the semester, and then the lottery will come out, and I'll take my chance with the numbers. His response was, Mr. Coleman, for anybody else, I'd sign that letter. But you're so sorely in need of discipline. I think the military is the best place for you. And I got drafted. Uh, Even though you were enrolled. That's correct. He wouldn't do it for me because he just didn't like my, didn't like me at all. Uh, I was at the top 10% of my class when I got drafted. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain it. So off I go into the service. I had never been exposed to prejudice in my life. I was brought up in Brooklyn. I was, I was half Jewish, half Italian. You know, we, we were all mixed up. I lived in a, a Jewish, Irish, Italian neighborhood. You know, nobody cared. Right. Uh, when I was in the Army, uh, I had a name. The name given to me by all the people in charge of me, that would be my sergeants and basic training, mm-hmm. and I don't want to curse on this, so I'll be, uh, was Mother Effin Jew Boy from New York. Mm-hmm. Where's the Mother Effin Jew Boy from New York? Come here, Mother Effin Jew. That's all I was called. Even though I wasn't Jewish, it didn't matter. I was from New York. I had a big nose, so I, that, that was my nickname. And I was tortured and through, through, through the military, through basic training. It was really not fun for me because at the time, the military was made up of almost exclusively Southerners. Mm-hmm. And How long did that last? Uh, two years. Well, basic training was only two months, but I was in the army for two years, uh, uh, spending. Were you exposed to that same kind of? Um... It got a little better when I got out of basic training, uh, because I, I, I became a legal clerk, uh, and I was, you know, so I, I, I wasn't in the fields, but mm-hmm. I was very close. I got, I got orders to go to Vietnam several times. I wouldn't fire weapons at the. I wasn't technically a conscientious objector because you have to be objective to all killing, mm-hmm. if to be a conscientious. And I was so moral. I said, no, I, if somebody attacked my family, I could kill them. If I could get my hands on Hitler before, you know, beforehand, I probably could have killed them too. So I'm not objecting to all killing, mm-hmm. but I'm sure objecting to killing these people over there who I have nothing against and they have nothing against me. So I, I had a really rough time in the army because uh, I, I ended up going firing too well in basic training and, and they wanted to make me a, 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 a sniper uh, because I fired very, I never touched a weapon in my life, but. Mm-hmm. They somehow I, I, I fired expert. Mm-hmm. I'm an expert marksman, <laughs> so so they wanted to put me in, and they told me we're going to make you a sniper, and it's an honor because the kill ratio is 25 to one. I said, but the one is me, right? <laughs> and I, said, I said, yeah, but it's, it's a great kill ratio. I said, no, I don't want to kill them. They, I don't want them to kill me. So it was really an ugly two years for me. 
Unfortunately, I came back to go to law school. They changed the marking system while I was away. And while I was in the top 10% going away, the first day I reported back, they said, you know, you're on academic probation. If you don't get your marks up, you're going to get thrown out of school. So Still I said, St. John. Yep. Mm-hmm. I was, I, so I said, that, that, why can't you put me in my class rank where I was when I left? They said, well, would that be fair to the other students? And I said, okay, I, I got the picture. I pulled my marks up. But needless to say, in all the years I've had, uh, I teach at several law schools. I bring in students from all, St. John's hasn't been at the top of my list. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, The only good news was when I got back, the dean actually he dropped dead there. dropped dead while he was teaching a class. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't brokenhearted. <laughs> so you, you graduated from St. John's. So I graduated from St. John's. And all I wanted to be was a public defender to help poor people. I had no interest in going out and making money working for a firm. I was offered nice jobs, but that was not who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got a job with my dream job, uh, public def- uh, Legal Aid Society in New York City, which is the public defender. Uh, I was very excited about it. I turned down other job offers, but I really didn't want them anyway. So I, uh, the day before my bar exam, I got a letter from, say, from the Legal Aid Society saying their funding was frozen and they were unhiring the 13 people they hired. So now I am taking the bar exam the next day, now jobless and not a happy camper. What a distraction going into the bar yes, exam. Yes, it was a real distraction. The bar exam is not an easy exam. Mm-hmm. But I took the bar exam. I, I knew I was, But at that time, Nixon was the president. Uh, Agnew was the vice president. Uh, our, our senators were a guy named Buckley. He was a, a conservative. He was actually a conservative party candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rockefeller was the governor. Uh, and I had just worked so hard on the last campaign for a guy named George McGovern who was a, a, an anti-war liberal candidate. And when we lost 49 states, I said, I'm totally out of step with what's going on with this country. I'm not comfortable here. Uh, it's going in a direction that I'm not happy. So the day after the bar exam, I left the country mm-hmm. and traveled around Europe. Uh, I had $1,000 and said, as long as it lasts, I can. I ended up in Denmark, where people were so warm, wonderful and warm and took me in. Uh, and I wanted to emigrate there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I'd be more comfortable politically there. Um, during that time, Agnew got indicted or you know, resigned, uh, and Nixon was mm-hmm. on the way out also. Right. Uh, so I had to come back and get a work permit so I could stay in the... The uh, ambassador was Shirley Temple, and she said, go back to... America to get your work permit, and then you can come back here. She was she was in mm-hmm. in Denmark. I come back. I go to the embassies to get a work permit, and they said, "No, no, no! What idiot told you that?" And I said, "Well, you're an idiot." <laughs> She's the ambassador. She said, "No, you get the work permit back in Denmark." So now I got tickets to go back to Denmark. Uh, I'm heading back to Denmark. The bar results came out. They used to take six months to mark the bar exam in December. So I went down to the Times Building. We used to come out in the newspaper. All the people that passed were, mm-hmm. names were in the paper. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, my name wasn't there. I was very upset. But the bottom line in the Times, where a machine grabs the paper, had little in the holes. And sure enough, I pasted the hole together, and my name was the last You're, name in there. So I had passed oh the bar exam. So uh, the next day, on my way back to the airport, I stopped at the Legal Aid Society, and, which was in downtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I got out of my car. 
ran upstairs and said, look, uh, did any jobs open up? They said, yeah, we had a few jobs. Uh, I said, did any of them fail the bar exam? He said, they all did. I said, well, I'm here. Pull my file. They said, oh, yeah, you got hired last year. Uh, yeah, put on a jacket. Go to court. So I went downstairs, popped my car, <laughs> got, got a sport jacket. And you started working? And started working and uh, ended up staying there for 25 years. Of course, after the first year, I had a heart attack. So I was out for a little while uh, because the pressure was... But I ha after I had my heart attack, which is 75, I started in 74 at the job, uh, I already was at legal aid. Uh, I was given a 25% chance of living five years. Mm -hmm. So my goal was to help as many people as I could before I went down. I said, if I can keep a lot of people out of jail, because at that time, the people going to jail were nickel and dime drug dealers, meaning $5 sales, mm -hmm. $10 sales. It was the old Rockefeller drug law, where people were getting life imprisonment for selling $5 worth of mm -hmm. you know, heroin or, or cocaine mm -hmm. to support their habit. Not the real, they, they weren't getting the big drug dealers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, so it really was a, I thought I could save as many people as I could before I went down. And I dedicated my life to, to, you know, to doing that. And you did that for 25 years? Well, yeah, I, was, I did as a staff attorney mm -hmm. for uh, five years. Uh, and I had all these hot, they gave me all these hot cases. I actually was, I was the son of Sam's first lawyer. I, uh, Is that so? Yes. Oh <laughs> uh, for, for a day. Yeah, it, was, it was really, bizarre. that's another bizarre story. But yes, and I did a lot of heavy cases. So they made me a supervisor to train other lawyers. So for the next 20 years, I was training other lawyers. I was, I was on staff. I mean, I was a supervisor. And I second chaired their trials, and I taught them how to do things. And I've been doing that ever, ever since. So Michael, <laughs> you shared a lot. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, it's a very, very interesting story that you shared. Um, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do for me. Sure. Is to look back. Sure. And if you could give your younger self advice mm -hmm. from your perspective now, what, what, what advice would you give, if any, looking back? That's interesting. That's a great question. Uh, I think the heart attack was a result of me putting so much taking so much on myself, pressure. You weren't genetically predisposed. No, well, I, I assume, yes. I, I, I mean, first of all, I weighed 138 pounds. I didn't do drugs. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. Right. So, and I ate healthy. So it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. I did have a few uncles mm -hmm. that died young, although my parents lived to ripe old ages. Mm -hmm. So yes, there must be some genetic factor in there. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that tension and pressure are killers. Mm -hmm. uh, it can and every disease, no matter what you have, that makes it worse. Mm -hmm. uh, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time when I had the attack mm -hmm. and survived it. Uh, but uh, it's learning how to put, a, a, after the attack, mm -hmm. I still represented people for 30 years, uh, 40, almost 40 years, but I learned how to put it in perspective. I didn't take my every problem home with me. Every kid that went to jail, I didn't go home and, and, you know, and not sleep at night over. I learned how you know, their problems are their problems. I can help them as much as I can. You're, you're looking back and you're identifying what it is that helped right. you to get through. But from your perspective, yeah. where you're sitting right now today, right. looking back, is there anything that you would tell your younger self 
um, perhaps yeah, you to put it to in perspective, it. to put yeah. life in you know, that you have uh, being a little detached and not being so involved, A, would have made me a better lawyer early on. Uh, and it took me a while to come to that. Uh, but um, there's not much I could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, my younger self would have still been raised the same way, mm-hmm. would have still had the same values. Uh, I, I don't think there's too much I could have changed other than learning how to put my life in perspective earlier. Uh, okay. Who, who were the influences in, in your life that helped to shape um, or determine the, the path that you took growing up? Well, my mother was had a, a heart and soul that was... Um, and always helped people. I think we discussed in the last session how we always took people into our home, mm-hmm. how we always, uh, she always, and, and family-wise, she shared her money. We didn't have any money, mm-hmm. but she always said it's one, it's one big pot. It belongs to all of us. Uh, so, and my father, he was the political one. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he helped, uh, actually, if you see Chuck Schumer, he'll say my father got him elected to his first position really? and love, oh, loves my father, said he would never would be where he is if not for my father. Uh, Liz Holtzman, who became later on, mm-hmm. also claims that my father got, he was a very politically active uh, and ran a political club in, in Brooklyn. Uh, so I kind of got the, po- the political stuff from him, mm-hmm. but any heart I have came from my mother, not from my father. So obviously the influences that your parents had on you right. manifest themselves in many ways throughout your life, as, as I suppose right. it should be. And going uh, to City College, City College was a hotbed that time mm-hmm. of liberal, you know, it was a very, very uh, active political environment, especially during the, the Vietnam War. And that really was the right place for me mm-hmm. also. Uh, had I had gone to a very conservative school, uh, I was never gonna be a fraternity guy. That wasn't who I was, uh, you know. I was a good athlete, but... Uh, so over the four years at City College, it, it sort of molded uh, who you are, what your thoughts yes, were, your... no doubt about your it. Your attitudes. Was there something specific? Was there a significant event or was yes. something where you said, you know what, it, it helped to determine who you were? Yes. What, what was that? I, uh, I used to have to drive. I lived all the way in a place called Sheepshead Bay at the bottom of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. City College is in Harlem. It's a long haul. Mm-hmm. It took me two hours by train to get there. Uh, I bought a $250 car and started to drive up. We had a bunch of, I had three friends I used to drive up with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, to get his parking space up in that area, you had to get there by six in the morning. So we'd leave our house at five. I'd get up there by six. My first class was a eight o'clock so it was okay we had a little breakfast mm-hmm. and I did some studying you had to study back then because they threw out 30% of the class after the first semester mm-hmm. like a shot for free mm-hmm. you had, right. and I was sitting in the car in an apartment house in Harlem and a woman came out with her baby who was dead had been bitten by rats in her bed at, oh my God. in a, a house mm-hmm. I was poor growing up not that poor. Mm-hmm. We had a nice little tiny house. Uh, I didn't know from rats. And th- it was going to school in Harlem. Completely showed me another world they had never been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read about it. I heard about it. I always thought politically that there was a lot of racism and oppression. But I never was really exposed to it. The thought of losing your child 
because there are rats running around your apartment because the baby can't even sleep at night was devastating to me. I'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that time what I had to do with my life. That my, that making money and, you know, or, you know, having a nice house in the suburbs, they were all nice things, but they were secondary. There were people suffering out there. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had to do something about it. So as a follow-up to what you're sharing, at that point you were how old? I was 20. So looking ahead and thinking about what your life might be, um, you know, looking down the road from where you were at that point, so to speak, um, did you imagine it differently? Did it, did it evolve the way that you thought yeah. it would? I thought it would be a t I'd be a teacher in a, in a poor area mm -hmm. and maybe I could bring something to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I realized then that that was probably not the best path for me, uh, that being a public defender uh, would be a way of keeping, you know, if, if a man goes to jail, first of all, I didn't like the prison system either because put, I didn't think putting a man in a cage was going to solve any problems for anybody. Uh, so the idea of jail, I, I look, I know some people have to be removed from society, mm -hmm. but the idea of putting men in cages didn't sit well for me and the effect it had on the family. Now it's just children, and they're going to grow up without a father. And what's going to happen to them? Uh, so <clears throat> every I thought every life I could save, if I could keep somebody out of jail, and he became a father and raised his child, and his children raised their children differently, mm -hmm. that it had, would have a ripple effect. Right. So helping one person was really helping maybe generations of people. You know, you don't know. I was fortunate. I was brought up with two parents mm -hmm. with great values. Everybody can say, oh, I would never be a criminal. How do they know? Mm -hmm. How do I know if I was brought up without a father and with a mother who had to work or, or was, was an addict or something, mm -hmm. and I was brought up in the streets, how I would have turned out? Mm -hmm. Everybody can say I would have been great, but you know something? That's bull. I don't know how I would have turned out. I'm fortunate to have turned out the way I did, and I'd like as many other people to turn out. <laughs> so you, you definitely had a, uh, an impact on the lives of many in your role as a public defender. I, I tried to calculate the number of people. Uh, the last job I had, which was the director of the Public Defender Office in Manhattan, we did 20,000 cases a year for 17 years. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> and but I, I guess where I was going with this question is that you didn't have an impact on those lives, um, but as a judge, you were a judge for- I was a judge for eight years. Eight years. Yeah. You had an impact on oh, yes. lives. You, you established the course or the path Yes. People were going to be taking by virtue of the fact that they were, their cases were being presented yeah. in your court. That's right. And the police were not very happy with some of the things I did. I so just, uh, give, give me an example of what you mean by that. Well, uh, it was only a local you know, village court, but mm -hmm. real problems to real people, mm -hmm. housing problems, criminal problems. Uh, and the police was ver were very used to having the prior judge believe whatever they said, no matter what they said, no matter how ridiculous it was, it doesn't matter. I have been looking at that my whole life. Mm -hmm. There are great police officers, there are average police officers, and there are bad police officers. There are great lawyers, there are mediocre lawyers, and sure. there are bad lawyers. Sure. There are great teachers. Sure. Bad. It, it, so uh, the problem is a bad police officer, as opposed to a bad teacher or a bad, can have devastating effect on people. Uh, so they were so used to having the, the judge accept anything they said. Uh, unquestioningly that uh, and I had been 
come from a place that was different from most judges. I came from a public defender office. Mm -hmm. In the public defender office, uh, during the heyday of the drug cases, when they were putting everybody away for life, mm -hmm. we had what was called dropsy cases. Dropsy cases were the same testimony every single case. Police officer says, I was walking down the street. The suspect took something out of his uh, left pocket, threw it on the ground. I looked at it. It was appeared to be heroin. I arrested him and dragged him. Now, the reason they said that was, what they were doing was illegally searching people, just grabbing people at random. And sure enough, the fourth person they searched had heroin on them, but they couldn't testify to that because that's an illegal search. So what they do is they'd say he threw it on the ground and abandoned it. Mm -hmm. So now I could see a cop get up there and testify 20 straight cases, 20 straight dropsy cases. The judge saying, yeah, that's what happened. Now, I don't know what kind of magic police officer he is that people throw drugs at him wherever he goes, but everybody knows it's a lie. The judge knew it was a lie. The prosecutor knew it was a lie. I knew it was a lie. And surely the defendant knew it was a lie. But yet, nobody did anything about it. That really upset me, is that we had this permissible perjury going on mm -hmm. because it was solving a problem. A, it doesn't solve a problem because when you permit commit perjury about that, what happens when he wants to lie about something else? Well, something else here. We can't, you know, once you let police officers, you know, the bar slips. Now, oh, it's just a poor black guy. Who's next? That's where the slippery slope comes. Then it's your brother. Then it's somebody else. You can't let that go on. Uh, I've seen things in my 40 years there that was so upsetting and so obvious that the police officers were lying. Uh, I've attended lineups where I had a, a defendant called, he, it was charged with 11 rapes, called the Green Sneaker Rapist. Why? All of the women, average looking guy, I don't know, but he was wearing green sneakers. That was the only way to get to trial. Mm -hmm. My guy gets put in the lineup, the people standing there, the police throw a pair of green sneakers, say, put these on. They wore his green sneakers, but green sneakers. who do you think is going to get picked out? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, you can't permit things like that. Whether the guy was guilty or not is not the issue, because once they can start doing things like that, where does it end? So uh, that, I brought that to the judgeship with me, which is, don't just tell me a cock and bull story mm -hmm. and have me accept it because the last judge did. The answer is, I don't believe you. Uh, I have no other evidence other than you saying something happened, so I'm going to acquit him. And uh, that, uh, that became the norm in my courtroom, and the police did not like it. Mm -hmm. They used to have, literally have sit-ins in my courtroom and try and intimidate me to do what they want. Look, if the case was the right case, it was fine. I, I, could, you know, I, I do what I had to do. But you don't just convict because, because, as a matter of fact, I got sued to be removed. This is a good, okay. The, the Girl Scouts came to, to watch my court. I used to have, uh, people used to come from all over to watch because I used to run a very light courtroom. I'd joke, I'd kid because... It's a people's court. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, you know. Let's not my court. It's their court. Yeah. Uh, so people used to come from uh, from Oceanside, from Valley Stream, because they said it was more fun than TV. And I used to run my courtroom, and the Girl Scouts were there. At the end of my session, the Girl Scouts came up with their leader and said, 
to which she said, would you mind if they ask you any questions? I said, sure. You know, and one of the Girl Scouts said, what's the hardest thing about being a judge? I said, well, the hardest thing is if somebody testifies, there's no magic formula to knowing whether they're telling the truth or a lie. And the law says, I'm supposed to take everybody at face value, not because of what they do for a living. So if a police officer testifies, he could be telling the truth or telling a lie. I can't believe him just because he's a police officer. Mm -hmm. My wife happened to be in a courtroom, and I said, if a teacher testifies, she may be telling the truth, she may be telling a lie. I don't believe her just Same because she's a teacher. And as a matter of fact, even if a judge testifies, he may be telling the truth. I can't say, oh, he's a judge, he must be telling the truth. So I have to treat everybody at face value. And mm -hmm. it's hard to tell mm -hmm. in a short time whether they're telling the truth or lie. One of the girls, Gouts, was the police chief's daughter. She went and told her father, the judge said all police officers are liars, which is not at all what I said. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there was a law, the, the police sued to have me removed because I wasn't impartial. So in the middle of the At what point in your eight-year career as a judge was this? I would say about six years in, mm -hmm. five, six years in. So I just said, well, all we can do is reconstruct what happened. Fortunately for me, the valedictorian from Limbrook High School, who was going on to Tufts, was the, whatever the chief, whatever an Eagle Scout is for the Girl Scouts, mm -hmm. she was there. Right, right. So we have this reconstruction hearing, and we bring all the Girl Scouts back, and the lawyer said, does anybody remember what the judge said? This girl says, I remember exactly what he said. You know, this girl was, was right. smarter than I was. And she spit back verbatim what I said. Okay, the lawyer for the police was, I'm sorry, judge, I apologize, you know. And they ended up, uh, I lasted another two years before they finally got me out. They, a new mayor came in and they got me out of there. But that's, mm -hmm. uh, who approached me and said, would you ever change, you know, can't you adjust the way you do things? I said, absolutely not. This is what you got, this is what you get, and you're gonna get an honest shot from me. Don't anybody come to me and tell me what I should do and shouldn't do. I'm gonna call them as I see them. Mm -hmm. If you don't like it, get rid of me. Um, so, uh, just when that was coming to an end, uh, the Legal Aid Society had gone on a strike, a very ill-advised strike. I had told my people not to go out. I was a supervisor at the time, so I wasn't out. <clears throat> that the mayor was Giuliani, they said, he's bluffing. I said, I know this guy. <laughs> he's not bluffing. Uh, sure enough, uh, after one day of strike, he said, I'm canceling the contract if you don't go back to work. They went back to work. He slashed the budget $10 million and said, I don't like you guys. I think I can do this better privately. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to contract out 20% uh, of your work, but on a county basis. One in Brooklyn, one in Bronx, one in Queens, one in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, he took a bid the first year. He said, put in proposals. Ever, they got hundreds of proposals on how to do this. and take them. Uh, he, got, he took one in the Queens, one in the Bronx. He turned down all of the Manhattan proposals, didn't like them. Mm -hmm. I got a call from the administration said, we think about leaving legal aid. We need to do your own public defender office. We had joked for years uh, when I worked for Legal Aid, what if we can get rid of management, get rid of the union, get rid of it, and we can have Mike's Legal Aid. You could run it, we could all work for you, and we'd be thrilled, and we wouldn't have to worry about all this crap any longer. So I was called and they asked me to put in a bid, and I got okay. the contract. Mm -hmm. So I got the contract to defend 
originally 13,000 people in New York, and I got to hire. I said, I'm not going to tell anybody because I don't want to invade. I started getting calls from all over the country. People that worked for me 20 years ago that were in private practice, some in Florida, some in me, all said, this was our dream. We're closing down our practices. We're all going to come back and work for you. So I ended up hiring like an all-star like of the hundreds of lawyers that worked for me, I picked the 30 best, and we ended up averaging 25 years experience, which was 20 more years than any other defender office in the country. Were you the sole purpose responsible for hiring, or did you have a committee? Oh, yes, no, 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 no. I, was the, I was the direct, I was everything. So you hired 30 people? I, yeah. Was so, there, what was it that, that you was saw lawyers, them? lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I had social workers, investigators, so, you know, I had, Lunch. What was it that that um, you looked for in each of them? They had, they were being I interviewed for different uh, positions, uh, but what was it that they you were, looked for? They were I wanted the best trial lawyers I can get my hands on. I knew that if you could, the best trial lawyers would get the best pleas. Also, ninety nine percent of the cases do not go to trial. Mm -hmm. They dispose by. But the backup has to be: if you don't give me this plea, I'm going to try it and I'm going to kick your ass. Mm -hmm. uh, after we were in existence for one year, the DA in Manhattan, his name was Robert Morgenthau, said, I met him at a party, mm -hmm. said, we have a whole different set of offers for your people than we do for the, all the rest, from legal aid and everybody else, because we know something. We've gone to trial against you guys, we lose 70% of our cases. I got an 80% conviction rate against everybody else, I lose 70% to you guys. So we have a whole different set of offers. So it's not just the few cases we try, it's gonna be the, we had over 20,000 cases. Mm -hmm. uh, all of those clients are going to get better deals and better pleas. I wanted talent. And I wanted, but I wanted people to be part of my family. I ran it different from everything else. I wanted people that would eat lunch together, that would go to lunch, that would go to each other's houses. I wanted it to be a big family. And I threw them all out at, uh, at 5 o'clock. Go home, go home, see your families. Okay. We're good. Well, also, my theory was I would only pay myself 10% more than my supervisors, even though I was the CEO and the, and the mm -hmm. founder and the director. My supervisors could only make 10% more than my lawyers. Uh, and that's the way we set up the salary structure. When bonus time came, because I always, I always came in under budget, but I had lots of extra money. Everybody in my office got the same bonus. My secretary and I took the same dollar amount. And it bought a lot of loyalty, meaning people knew I wasn't stealing all the money. I underpaid myself by 50%. By 50%. So I imagine that the core group that you hired stayed with you for, forever. forever. Never left. Until I left. Until I left three years ago, mm -hmm. not a, I didn't lose it. Literally lost nothing. So how long a period of time was that? 17 years. Working no, with that same core group? Never left. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We had literally no turnover. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless we lost one or two of the younger people whose... Uh, like their husband got a job somewhere else in the country. Not one person in 17 years left to take another job uh, to go to another place. And I, believe me, they were underpaid. The people that came out of private practice, I was paying them half what they were making. Mm -hmm. But I said, I'm gonna give you a life back. I'm giving you six weeks vacation. I don't wanna see you, I don't wanna know from you. I want you out of the office by five o'clock because I want you to have a good life with your families. If you're happy, you'll make a better lawyer than somebody who's unhappy. I can't win you with money. I'm not gonna pay you enough. I have to win you with, with family. And sure enough, people look forward to coming to work every day. So what, what was the um, byproduct of that in terms of the quality of work that you saw? It was unbelievable. We had a reputation around the country 
for being the defender. I mean, we were light years ahead. The judges used to tell us it's like being on a different planet than everything else. You guys are so competent. Our evaluations, everybody, and the clients knew about it. If we go, like we split arraignments with legal aid. Mm -hmm. When we went into arraignments, it would, the pens were back there. There could be 400 people in the pens. When it got word that the New York County Defender Services was in arraignments, a big cheer would go up in the pens. The clients knew about it. It was really, it was, it was really a dream come true for me to have it unfettered. Nobody bothered me. I ran it exactly the way I wanted. I set salaries. I did the hiring. I did everything. And it was, I, the city, to its credit, gave me the money, never asked me a question about it. It was great. Michael, I have to ask this question. Sure. As we are winding up here, sure. um, you, you, you had a very, very interesting uh, career, interesting life. And I know that you're retired now. Yep. And as somebody who's newly retired, uh, how do you go from be doing something that you love, where you are involved in impacting the lives of others on a daily basis for an extended period of time, for over 30 years, how has that transition been for you in your retirement? And what advice can you give new retirees like me? I've actually surprised myself. I really needed to take a deep breath for you. <laughs> you know, it was a hectic, pressure-filled, you know, and I had a health issue. That was one of the reasons I left a year earlier. I was 69 when I, I left. I really didn't want to do anything for a year, but I still teach uh, and volunteer at Hofstra Law School. Mm -hmm. I still do career advice. I do a lot of uh, career, uh, you know, advice to people who are looking to be public defenders or prosecutors or anything. But I still teach a class uh, twice a year at Hofstra on how to try a case. It's basically a, 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 a methods course. Get up, let's, we're going to do a trial. I, I'm sure that your methods are very different from the professor that you had at St. John's. Very, very, very <laughs> different. Actually different than most professors. I really, oh, I, I want to get up, people, I want you, people you to get involved. You don't subscribe to the Socratic <coughs> method? Not at all. Not at all. You got to do it. You can't learn it by reading it. You can't learn it by, you have to learn it by doing it. Mm -hmm. Trial work is only one out of think out of a hundred, so it might be two out of a hundred lawyers ever see a courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, those are a rare breed, and you don't have to be brilliant. It doesn't take rocket science, but you have to have a good sense of the world, a good sense of yourself, and you have to have a little bit of gift to speak. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if you're tremendously introverted, it's a real struggle. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not nervous before you get up before a jury. You will be nervous, but can you conquer that and still sell it? Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to have some kind of, for what I do, as opposed to a prosecutor, is very different. Mm -hmm. You have to have, I can go to a bar, bar, I can point out the prosecutors and defenders. Mm -hmm. The difference between the heart and soul of people who really want to help or people who are just politically motivated and want to get a, a, better, a stepping stone to a better job is a different animal for me. And I could, I used to go to job fairs uh, at NYU. I could see 100 people in a day, and mm -hmm. those two, I want you two. <laughs> the other 98, goodbye. Just like that, or after some brief period of exchange yep. between you Sit and Sit down, let's talk. After three minutes, uh -huh. you two stay, the rest of you go, we gotta talk a little bit more. And, and can you crystallize what it is in those two or three minutes that? It's really, it's hard to put, you know, I didn't trust anybody else to do it because nobody else could do it. In other words, I've always had staff that could do the interviewing, but I never trusted them to do it. And when I did it, and they sat next to me, they say, oh, it, it the interview itself, though. yes, but the interview itself, you have to be able to dig further than, this is your resume, mm -hmm. I see you did a clerkship for a judge. 
So what? I know you can read. I know you can write. You went to Harvard Law School. Yes, you can write. Uh, that's not what I'm Give looking for. Give me something for. that's going to set you apart. <clears throat> yes. Now, yeah, what? Yeah, okay, hold it. You're a waitress. Now, let's talk about that. How did you handle Where was it? In a bar? How did you handle yourself when a guy got fresh? How did you handle yourself when they did this? How, you, I want to know what makes you tick mm -hmm. as a person rather than all that, econo that academic stuff. Okay, the, the, the academic stuff is I can shake a tree and get a hundred good lawyers out of the best law schools in the country. But what, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you know? How, I, I like the fact you waitresses, shoe salesmen, something that got you dealing with the public in difficult situations. Because let me tell you, it's going to be difficult. The judge wants to put your client in jail. The DA wants to put your client in jail. The, the prosecutor wants to put your client in jail. The victim surely wants to put you. <clears throat> Somebody's got to stand there and make sure they do it right. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You, you have to be a, have a little, little spine for that. Michael, last question. Sure. Uh, I, I think I asked this question the last time we spoke, and I'm going to ask it again now as we are winding down here. Uh, coming into our conversation sure. today, you had a, a level of expectation. Yeah. Did this conversation sure. meet the expectation it, it got, that you right. have? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's great. Right. You know, I could go on with stories, my son wrote me a list of stories for days if you want, but this got me, well, I think you got my, the essence mm -hmm. out of this. I think it got where you want, where you wanted to go and surely where I wanted to go. I, I hope that there are takeaways for those who are listening and I think that you provided people with, with takeaways Hopefully. from a very interesting life and, and perspective and insights. So I thank you for all of those and thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Okay. Okay. <laughs>